Welcome to the Wellbeing Rebellion, the podcast that's changing workplace cultures for good. We're your hosts, Ngazi Wella and Obehi Alafoje. Let's get this rebellion started. Did you know that of the over 13,000 partners in law firms in England and Wales, only 90, yes, nine zero are black. This is the finding of the 1% study, named after the approximate proportion rounded up of black partners at solicitors firms with 10 or more partners. The 21-month study published by Extents in 2022, which was endorsed by the Law Society and the Black Solicitors Network, and also sponsored by major law firms, interviewed 65 black partners at major firms. It found that whilst black people constitute 3.3% of the population of England and Wales, less than 1% of partners at major UK law firms identify as black. By contrast, there are nearly five times more Asian partners than black partners. That means that 90% of partners in the UK identify as white. The statistics are shocking, and it's clear that the legal sector must do more to attract, retain, develop and progress diverse talent to senior levels. Yet whilst black representation at senior levels is poor in the legal profession, It's a truly sorry story all round. Despite years of public commitments from government and business to increase ethnic diversity at leadership levels, the number of black individuals at the top of Britain's biggest companies has fallen to zero. Research compiled by Executive Recruitment and Diversity Consultancy Agency Green Parkin in 2021 revealed that for the first time in the six years of analysis, There are no black chairs, CEOs, or CFOs in the FTSE 100. That is why I'm delighted that in this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion, I'm joined by Shagun Oshuntokun, one of the few black partners in the UK to have successfully broken through the 1% ceiling, and who is now a managing partner at global law firm Brian Cave Leighton Paisner. Shagan has 30 years experience in commercial dispute resolution through both litigation and arbitration. He specialises in cases involving claims of civil fraud, dishonest and misappropriation of assets. He leads the Africa Group at BCLP and is also the managing partner of BCLP's London office. He's ranked by Chambers and Legal 500 the legal directories as a leading lawyer in the UK for banking litigation and civil fraud claims, as well as a foreign expert on Nigerian disputes. In 2020, he was named Black British Business Person of the Year by the Black British Business Awards and has been named for four years running in the Power List, which recognises and celebrates Britain's most influential black people. An incredible guest to speak about the 1% study how he managed to break through what I call the brown glass ceiling and how he moved the needle on racial inclusion at senior levels in law. Like with all our discussions on the Wellbeing Rebellion, this is a frank, open and honest one. 
I have no intention of skirting around the sensitive issues of race and the systemic racism that persists in Britain today, because if we fail to address them, then we can never resolve them. So please be mindful that we're not interested in finger pointing or blaming. We simply want progress and equity for all. And with that said, let's get started. Shagan, it's such a pleasure to have you here on the Wellbeing Rebellion. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, a real pleasure. I've been really excited about this one. Ever since we met in October, we had that really great conversation, which I thought was very frank about what it is to be black working in the law in the UK. It was for Black History Month last year. But I wanted to pick up on that, especially because we then had the release of the Cotton Capital Report, which my listeners will know I've spoken about from time to time. It's been revelationary to me about just how much those of us in the present are still living with the impact of slavery and slave trade from hundreds of years ago. And then obviously there was the 1% report, the 1% report. And that is something that brings us to this conversation today, because you are one of the special few who has risen to the level of partner in the UK. That must have been a real source of pride for you, a real personal and professional accomplishment. When you go into a profession such as the law, I guess any other profession, there is a career path and there's a start, there's a middle, there's a finish. And the expectation is that, or the, um, the ambition is that you progress from one stage to the other with the hope of reaching the top. So, of course, when you do achieve partnership in a major law firm, which is what I think the 1% study uh, focused on, yes, yes, there is a sense of accomplishment. But I always say this, that for me, it's not a one-time thing. Once you make your way through the ranks of you know, trainee to senior associate to partner and you reach partnership, it's not, you don't sort of lie back on your chaise long and 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 be be hand fed with grapes as you as you lounge back in your uh... <laughs> disappointing i really thought that was it you'd reached valhalla there was no more work to do <laughs> i wish i wish can you tell Such us is... a bit about how your how you reached this level how did your career progress start from the beginning actually sure sure Give a bit of a potted biography i was born in nigeria I am uh, one of five um, children. I've got four siblings. Both my parents were medical medical doctors, um, uh, accomplished in their own in their own right. And I, like many others of of a, of a certain, I guess, socioeconomic background in Nigeria, you're sent to boarding school after your O levels. And so I I came over to England and I was in boarding school. After which I did my during which I did my A-levels, attended university here, did an economics degree at Queen Mary, London, after a year out, during which I, I went back to Nigeria. As you probably know, Ngozi, we have a national service, <laughs> which takes place after your, your first degree. After, and I did that for a year, working, working in a bank in Nigeria. And then I had an opportunity of studying law at, uh, at Balliol College, Oxford, and I took, took that chance. I thought... It was, um, uh, the law was, was a, I guess it was an obvious progression from my economics degree. At least it seemed so at the time, particularly with parents who were always you know, asking, well, you know, 
what is your profession? What is your what are you going to do to sustain yourself? Because economics is all fine and dandy, but you know, nobody in their in their minds as professionals, um, you need to you need to have something under your belt on which you can fall back on uh, as the, the same goes if needs be. So I had a sister who was already practicing law, and I thought, well, I can give that a go. And uh, studying law at Oxford seemed to be a very good way of doing that. I've always known that there's only a few approved professions for Nigerian parents of a certain class. Yes, so I think that's we, probably right. We share a very similar <laughs> background with both my parents are medical doctors. So it's like, are you going to go and practice medicine? You're going to read law. <laughs> In my family, architecture was also approved. Uh, right. But it's only medicine and law. Which one are you going to do? Yeah, yeah? yeah mm-hmm. think, So you chose the law route because your parents were doctors. I, ch- I chose the law route. I, mm-hmm. I, I dodged a bullet with medicine. Both my, my two younger brothers are both medics. Um, I've got a sister who's a lawyer, as I said, and um, my other sister is a is an accountant. Rebel! She's the, um, she, she is a rebel, but, <laughs> but she's, she's, she's done very well out of it. She's the... Um, Chief Financial Officer for Shell Nigeria. So wow. Yeah. Pretty, uh, okay. Yeah. So how did you find your way on the partnership track at BCLP? After a degree at, at Oxford, I started working in the city, uh, started my training contract with a law firm called Wild Sapt. Wild Sapt uh, is now, through a series of mergers, part of the law firm Dentons, which is a I think it's the largest law firm in the world, certainly by numbers, uh, by headcount. WildSat was a typical city law firm in the early 90s, did mainly banking and financial services work. There were few enough partners in the law firm in those days to have their name on the notepaper. It was, it was, it was that long ago. <laughs> and after WildSat, I then moved to Eversheds, which was a... as, as those who in the legal sector will know is another large law firm. And after a brief stint there, I then joined what became DLA Piper, which is another international law firm. I made partner in DLA in 2003, and I remained at DLA for a total of nine years, from my time as a senior associate through to partnership, through to becoming an established partner and then in 2008, I joined uh, BCLP, which uh, at the time was just BLP, Bowen Leighton Paisner, which was, again, another institution in the city. And after I've been here for 15 years, five years ago, BLP, as it then was, merged with a U.S. law firm called Brian Cave, which has yielded Brian Cave, Leighton Paisner, BCLP, which is a global law firm with 31 offices, I believe, with about 1,250 lawyers doing the whole the whole gamut of corporate and commercial law. I specialize in commercial litigation myself, and I've always done. I also lead the firm's efforts in developing business in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa. I lead the Africa group here. And I'm also the managing partner of uh, the UK um, offices of, of uh, BCLP. Most obviously, the London office, which is the largest office in in BCLP by um, by quite a bit. So yeah, that's a very quick canter through my my path to partnership and managing partnership. And you just race through that little fact. Yes, I am the managing <laughs> partner of the largest BCLP office by quite some margin. But you're also, in case anyone hadn't known, a black man, 
And if I look at the <laughs> the one percent report, that that makes you a rarity, a real rarity to to be the managing partner, no less. Do you ever recall a time when you thought that that might not happen for you purely because of who you are, where you come from, the color of your skin? I I didn't I didn't harbor any doubts that that I if I. I can't say I was never plagued with self-doubt because very few people are not plagued by self-doubt. Mm. I think probably only psychopaths are <laughs> never plagued by self-doubt. So, so of course, yeah. we all, we all, we all, speaking generally, we all worry about whether we, whether we've got what it takes, whether our efforts are going to be sufficient, whether the uh, things are going to fall our way, whether the right opportunity comes along. Of course. There are all those contingencies which you, which you, you have no control over, and um, uh, if if I step back and look at look at my formative years and the fact that I spent my my formative year, years in Nigeria in a comfortable upbringing, I have to say, with with parents who by no means were wealthy but had enough to 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 cater for their children's education, and then my father in his very typical Nigerian way would say, well, the only thing I can give you is a good name and an education. And then after that, yeah. it's up to you. I'm sure that, that refrain <laughs> probably does <laughs> sounds very familiar to you. Yeah. So you, 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 I came to England to boarding school with a, uh, you know, with a, with a grounding in where I came from, what I was capable of, the lineage mm. I had, what the expectations um, I had placed on me were, and um, that is the that is what formed my mindset in 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 my studies in you know, London and Oxford and coming into the law. So did I did I did I worry that I would I wouldn't I wouldn't make it? Yes, I did, but I didn't worry I wouldn't make it because I was black. I, that mm. that is that is something which I, I I do think a lot about because I am asked a lot about it, and I can, mm. I can I can say. That in all honesty, it, it, it wasn't at the forefront of my mind, or rather, it wasn't the topmost concern I had. The top, right. the topmost concern I had was well, probably a very, a, a a strong internal critic, no doubt, formed by um, parental expectations and, and and other expectations to succeed. So it was pressure which I I I put on myself to excel because I had a because I had an expectation I wanted to live up to, uh, and of mm. course the 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 color of my skin came into came into that because once you are in a system which you you very quickly realize there are certain uh, there's there's certain stereotypes there are certain assumptions made about you uh, which mm -hmm. you you very as I say you very quickly uh, learn about experience at boarding school. In the in the mid eighties in mm -hmm. rural Suffolk um, was not a walk in the park in terms of <laughs> in terms of mm. diversity of of knowledge and and history and background or others and I I will say I I made some very very good friends at boarding school some of whom are still good friends today but at, at the same time I it was just a hotbed of casual racism you know name calling and. Mm. Um, uh, yeah. uh, that, that 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 went on. So you very quickly learn that 
even though I would tell people when they say, oh, do you have, um, uh, do you have houses in Nigeria? Um, do you have cars in Nigeria? And, and I'll have yeah. to sort of, you know, learn very quickly to come back with a very sharp repost about, well, you know, my house in Nigeria, I could probably fit about four of your houses into my house in Nigeria if you wanted to know. So you develop a very, you, you, you learn to, you, you almost, um, uh, you learn how to, how almost as if attack is the best form of defense. And I, when I say attack, mm. I don't mean that in a violent or physical, or physical like sense, that. but it's, a, it's almost an armoring up. You have to develop a, 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 a stance and an attitude, which in my younger years could probably verge on, on, on conceit or arrogance, mm. because you knew that unless you, you set out your stall and define who you are, you might have assumptions made about you, which you were then having to counter. So psychologically, you, you sort of armor up and, um, uh, uh, and, and go out. And that's the way you deal with, that's where I chose, I, I learned to deal with the, with the racism. Mm. And uh, the, uh, but to go back to your question, did I, did I ever think that it would get in my way? I did, mm. I, uh, I honestly didn't, because I thought, well, if I'm good enough and I know I'm good enough, then that will out and that will that will prevail. Um, it's slightly naive, but it was the it was a mindset that I had uh, going into the law, uh, and it's evolved from there. And I do think it's a common mindset of those of us who have come from Africa, from educated, accomplished backgrounds where racism isn't isn't considered as an obstacle because everybody's Nigerian. I mean, who are you going to be racist against? Yeah. Even though yeah. there is still racism. I know that if, a, if a white absolutely. or English person comes into the office, they immediately get elevated above you. Why? In my own country. But but still, um, yeah. I, when I talk to my my cousin, my partner, Obi, she, she came over to the UK as a teenager. So she was... Um, mm coming over as 17, 18 or something like that, mm. her understanding of racism is quite different to mine when I came yeah. over at 12. So she didn't expect it to be an issue. She has that same, mm. race, why would my race yeah. be an issue? Whereas because I yeah. come over and experienced the whole boarding school stuff mm. a lot earlier, I understood it was already gonna be an issue. So I think it's quite, it's quite common. To, to have that mindset, yeah, it, it is it is common, and 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 um, uh, so I, I I I'm probably more in the in in, in Obi's camp. So I came over when I was 15 after my 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 O levels, mm. um, and I uh, as I say, the, my attitude to racism was well, look, if you've got an issue, really, it's it really is your problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you you need to deal with that, and and I get. And when I say that, I'm very conscious that it's a, it's not an attitude which is which is which everyone can can adopt because of the circumstances in which they're in. So I'm I'm very conscious that some people might hear them and think, well, that's very flippant. It's okay for you to say that, and I accept that. Mm. I think that yeah, the circumstances in which we find ourselves are not of our own making. <laughs> frequently are the making of us and you 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 
you are where you find yourself in, and, and, and you deal with your circumstances um, as, as, as you find them. But that's the way I dealt with it. And, and I think that, that in telling my story, I'm always conscious that there are, there are many, many people who, whose experience of racism is different. Well, I think the 1% study picked that up as well, that there is, there is certainly a, 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 a perception of racism mm-hmm. or difference of perception of racism between black Africans and, and black Caribbeans who are, who are, if you like, born in Britain, have been through the education system, have internalized a lot of the racist messaging mm-hmm. uh, that wider society might be sending. As, as compared to those who perhaps had a formative years where everybody around them was was black, so I think I think it's quite a different context and, and needs to be probably it needs to be teased out a little bit more. Certainly. So you read the one percent report. What did you think of it? What did you make of it? Um, I, I I I read it. I I took part. I think Julian Richard did a fantastic job. I think that it was a thorough thorough study. I mean, you 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 read the methodology and and the and the research and the and the, the the design setup that went into it and and, and the output is it's first class. I have to take my hat off to it. Absolutely, a lot of it resonated with me. I think that that I uh, the fact that there are ninety out of the, in 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 major in major law firms in the UK there are ninety black partners out of thirteen. I think was it thirteen thousand. Uh, it's pretty stark. It's depressing. Mm-hmm. I don't feel any any pleasure or exclusivity, and and I said this to Julian, and uh, he hosted a dinner for the for the ninety uh, recently, and and I, I I was asked to address the uh, the audience, and I said I don't feel you know being called the one percent. It doesn't it doesn't it doesn't bring with it any sort of sense of, well, you know, we're an exclusive club. Yeah, no pride. And, uh, yeah, yeah, aren't we, aren't, look at us, aren't we? Yeah. Aren't we, aren't we fantastic? Because it's just, it's, it's just, it is depressing. And it is, it tells you how much work there, need, there needs to, that needs to be done. That it's been done, but needs to be, needs to be continually uh, reiterated and, and, and moved forward. Because as much as people might say, in, in people in my position might say, well, this is all very, this is, this is an inclusion tax. We are bearing the burden of fighting the battle mm-hmm. and being looked to, to carry the, 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 the standard. And sometimes it can be wearing, sometimes it can be frustrating. I don't see what other options there are mm. because... If the inertia, the, the, the status quo bias, again, which the 1% report picks out, is not constantly challenged, then things simply won't change. And mm. the way things work is that it's the people who, who have literally skin in the game who will be, the burden will fall on them. Of course, they can't do it on their own, and they do need to, they do need allies and they do need champions and they do need um, others to speak up and stand with them. But they, there, isn't, there isn't an option for, uh, well, there is, we all have choices, but if you want to see change made, you've got to, you've got to step into the breach and, and, and do what you can uh, while you can. Mm-hmm. 
understanding at the same time that it's not all yours to do. And that um, in, a, 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 in, in the words of one of my favorite um, prayers uh, written for Oscar Romero, which sort of ends, you know, we're, we're, we're prophets of a future, not of our own. Mm. So, you know, you've always got to take the long view and, and understand that you may not, you, you, may, not <laughs> you may not see the change, yeah. but unless you do it, it's not going to happen. So. You have to have a lot of patience for that. I'm starting to understand that myself. Yeah. So the report focuses predominantly on the black experience in the law. Yeah. But why do you think that, that black people seem to be failing to progress within the legal industry at least at, at the same rate as other minority ethnics? Mm -hmm. So they were saying that Asians are, I think it's five times more likely to be partner in in the UK. Mm -hmm. What is why is there a difference? It's 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 a hard question because there isn't there isn't as there is a straightforward answer. You know, it's a it's mm. as my young adult children would say, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it's complicated, and, and it's a it's a mix of it's you know it's a confluence of of, of factors. You've got you've got status quo bias. You know, the fact that the law has always been seen as quite exclusive, quite privileged, quite hierarchical, that that works in, in, in a number of ways against uh, black people coming into the law mm -hmm. and succeeding at it. it. It works to keep people, black people out in the sense that they think, well, that's mm -hmm. not for me. Look at look at look at the sort of people who occupy that space why mm -hmm. why would i in my right mind think i could i've got any chance of succeeding there and then you've got the internal uh factors which 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 tends to work against change you know we've always recruited in this way mm. we've always recruited from this this school these universities we've succeeded yeah. so why should we change where we recruit from or who we recruit the affinity bias feeds into that and, and and I think that you've also you've also then got to look at what happens when when black people do join law firms. What do they find? Do they find an environment that is that's inclusive, that they feel comfortable in, in the sense that it recognizes that uh, it recognizes their diversity. Mm -hmm. And we're now talking about the cultural environment. Uh, the soft culture, if you like, how do how do people feel in their organisations? How, how is how is how are conversations had? Uh, are they broad enough? Are they open enough to include those who perhaps don't fit into the you know the the, the majority groups' um, interests? Then you look at much more hard uh, structures, and I'm talking now about work allocation talking about sponsorship, I'm talking about opportunities for progression. There needs to be an intentionality behind those to ensure that when people of colour come in, they actually are encouraged to succeed and given, given the opportunities to succeed. Long and short, is it's, it's a mix of institutional factors. There is some element of socioeconomic realities and we were talking earlier about the the, the legacies of you know legacy of historical legacy uh, the fact that slavery the fact that 
without getting too involved in 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 in, in, the, in the in the detail, but the fact is there's a long historical legacy of black people being racialized as black, and that carries with it certain connotations, certain prejudices, and you know law firms exist in society. So those same connotations and those same prejudices, consciously or otherwise, um, factor into into the progression black people can make in in in, tradi- in a traditionally very conservative profession. So when I have spoken to people in this industry about the issue of why we can only get to less than one percent of black people at partnership level in the UK, I'm often met with it's a pipeline issue which frustrates me a lot but is it a pipeline issue uh typical lawyer answer uh yes and no <laughs> um it, it's 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 a i mean there's a there, there, there is there's a reality around around certain factors for instance you need to have in order to promote people to partner, you need to have people in numbers. If you're going to move the needle, you need to have people in numbers coming through uh, at the point, getting to the point where they can be promoted to partner. I mean, that's just, that just that's just you know, there's no there's no bucking that 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 fact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> By the same token, you then got to say well. The pipeline is not a it's not a passive thing. It's not like, you know, it's not like it's not like you know, the pipeline just sort of suddenly operates by itself. Mm-hmm. So to say, well, it's just a pipeline issue, it, it, you're then gonna say, well, y- yeah, of course it is, because you need you need to have talent coming through. The question is, why aren't they coming through? Right. And and, and to mm-hmm. me, the 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 response is a pipeline issue tends to belie a certain complacency as if to say the pipeline is going to fix itself um, mm-hmm. or you know a pipeline and you know the picture of a pipeline is you know water flowing through or oil flowing through a pipe you know easily without without interruption and over time of course you know you open your tap and water will come out and it's all going to be fine and dandy mm. yeah that's not the way life works, you know. You, in a in a in a in a professional services organisation, you, you need to keep you need to keep feeding the pipeline. It's not something that's just going to be, you know, work itself out. So it, it comes back to what I say about you just need uh, law firms. The, the the sector needs to be intentional. You need to make you need to be pushing all the time. You need to be refining. You need to be criticizing yourselves as organizations you need to critically be examining your own recruitment retention promotion uh, systems mm. are they fit for purpose are we getting the best talent and for me it's it's not a of course there's a there's a uh, there's a, a right thing to do aspect to to diversity but to my mind it, it, there's just as much a why wouldn't you do this for good business reasons aspect? If you're building a sustainable organization in which you want the best talent, then surely what you do is you go out, cast the net as wide as you can in order to capture the best talent available, mm. 
to drive your business forward and to meet your clients' needs. And to my mind, if you're, if you're focusing on a very narrow, static pool of talent, which historically may have served well in a different era and a different culture, but isn't, it, it, it isn't giving you access to the best talent, the widest possible pool of talent, then that to me is, 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 not, a, is not the best way to build, to build a sustainable business. And, you know, people will cite the various Harvard and McKinsey reports about diverse businesses developing, having the best um, you know, financial and productive outcomes. And you, you can rely on that as well to, uh, as part of your, your business rationale. But it, to my mind, it's just much more simple. It's simpler than that. Professional services organizations need good people. And the way you find good people is by searching, is, is by casting your net as wide as possible to find them, especially in this in this world where uh, uh, the skills you need to succeed as a lawyer are so, I think, much further removed from what they were when I was coming through, where there's much more, uh, you know, people were looking much more at um, academic grades and, and uh, these days, when we, yeah. when, we, when we recruit, we've actually shifted the, the, the emphasis from, 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 from academic grades much more to skills to skills based um, assessment. So yes, academics are important, and they have their they have their um, they have their uses. But we know as an organisation what are the skills we're looking for in our young lawyers, and we 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 tailor our recruitment process to test those skills, which are not necessarily the same as academic um, qualifications. Mm. So you you just need to be. I think you just need mm. to be. Just need to think a little bit smarter. And look at other industries. I mean, the consultants and the accountants have been doing, have been mixing and matching their recruitment um, uh, uh, processes for, for many years. And I frankly think the law, the legal sector is late to the party in many, in many respects. So it's a pipeline issue, but the pipeline is not just a pipeline. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a pipeline issue, but it's also quality of the pipe issue. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so what is BCLP doing in this area, specifically looking at how you plan to ensure that there is a healthy chance that within the next however long, there will be more black partners at BCLP at senior level. So not just looking at the recruitment, mm -hmm. but the progression aspect within the organization. Yeah. It is. I mean, you're absolutely right. I think at the recruitment, at the at recruiting at an early stage, again, not not resting on our laurels, but we have seen significant improvement uh, over the last five six years. Uh, just to give you a very quick stat, um, in, in last last year, uh, this year, uh, about fifty five percent of our of our trainees and apprentices were ethnically diverse. 25 percent 55 that's brilliant yeah 25 percent of them at that junior level were black so mm -hmm. you know, we have we have specific programs where we are we're looking to capture as I say it's 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 not about the, the argument is well are you preferring this person over that person and my my view is no what we're doing is we're broadening the talent pool so we're capturing the best talent regardless of 
ethnicity and race and gender and, 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 and orientation. So the recruitment is important because it, it, is, it is vital that you, you build that platform. But then what we then look at is, well, getting people in is one thing, keeping them and promoting them is another. And mm. it goes back to what I said earlier about the whole matrix of soft factors such as building a culture and, and encouraging a culture where belonging, safety psychologically is part of the culture. And that, that, that means tone from the top as well as specific training, which, both of which we, 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 we focus on. But I think then you then, you then get into much more granular detail and programs. Sponsorship programs are vital. I think yeah. that you need to ensure that the talent you have is nurtured, is encouraged, is mentored, is advocated for, is sponsored. Can you, um, can you just explain how sponsorship differs from mentorship? Because I think this is a critical thing for people to recognise. Mentorship is, is, is vital. And I think I do enough of that to know that it makes a difference both to the mentor and the mentee in, in terms of sharing ideas, supporting, supporting one another, sharing tips, um, providing moral support and, and psychological support. I think sponsorship is much more, it's much more structured and it tends to be institutional. So you have a program within a firm where you have the sponsor and the sponsee. Mm-hmm. And to take, 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 take as an example, my, my role at the moment on, 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 the, on our sponsorship program, I work with a talented senior associate who has partnership aspirations. I am responsible for working with them to build their business case for partnership. The firm supports them in providing a budget for a a project that they and I work on together, which the end game is to deliver. And it can take many forms. It can be a client pitch. It can be a uh, a better way to make use of our data. It can be uh, a know-how improvement, but something which, when added to their uh, capabilities and their experience, builds them out into a much... It, it builds their business case. It gives them our opportunity to demonstrate who they are, what they can do. It culminates in a, in a, in a, sh- in a showcase presentation at the end of the year where partners and other stakeholders in the firm are invited to listen to the sponsor, the sponsee, the project. The clients are involved uh, to the extent that the project in, it, it includes them. So it's, 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 it's a much more structured program. And, and I think a key part of that is, and sometimes you hear, you, you hear about sponsorship or, or advocacy. Again, there's a slight difference, but I think most sponsorship programs will involve a degree of advocacy. I'm an advocate as well. I know the person I'm, I'm, I'm sponsoring. I will talk about them when they're not in the room. I will, I will, I will say this is this is this is this is the social capital. And essentially, it's using my own position as a somebody with social capital within the firm to highlight the qualities of the person I'm sponsoring. So it it, it is really really important and. Uh, it gives it gives the, the the candidates and the associates confidence that the firm has their backing and is giving them the opportunity to to show what they what they can do. Uh, so I think it's vital. Another piece that we work on is 
obviously, I talked about the tone from the top, coaching our leaders, coaching our partners in how to ensure that equity is, they think about it when they go about their business with the firm. That's the soft part of tone from the top. The other bit is, is a much more, again, structured, which is work allocation. So we are, nice. we've been rolling out a work allocation program starting from London. We're now doing some pilots in the US. But essentially, you need to interrupt that affinity bias, which yeah. many of us, well, most human beings have that. It's not a, it's not a, it's, it's, it's not universal to, exactly, to exclusive to whites, it's everyone. Absolutely, and, and that helps break that 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 affinity bias by leveling the the playing field, putting a resource manager in between the partners and the associates. And the remarkable thing is, even even people who were resistant to it because they are wedded to the traditional, well, this is I'm the partner, this is my client, I know what my client was, and this is the sort of team that's done well in the past. If it ain't broke, why fix it? That kind of mentality. They go into it and. And when they come out, they're absolutely raving. Mm-hmm. We're waxing lyrical about the virtues of this. Because it, what it does is it, 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 it removes from that, from, from, from partners, the, to, to, to a certain extent, the, 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 um, the worry about resourcing a project or a, or a, or a deal or a case. And it gives a resource manager who knows the team, who knows people's business, who knows their interests, the ability to pull together a team which serves the the partner and the clients best. And it means that those who might otherwise get a get a look in as an associate, because they're beyond the the visibility of the partner are brought within range. So I'm a big fan of, of work allocation and it's been trialed in London. And as I say, we're, we're hoping that in time, uh, the rest of the firm will will embrace it because I think it can do a lot to, uh, not just on the, as you say, on the diversity and inclusion side, but just as a, as a matter of good business sense. You don't want some associate working, you know, all hours God sends and others not having sufficient um, work to keep them busy and by leveling things out you get you, you raise the utilization and the productivity of the team as a whole to me it's just a, it's a no-brainer quite frankly it's fantastic to hear that you guys are taking practical steps to address both sides of the pipeline if you like but uh, we're running out of time so i just want to ask you a final question i could talk about this forever <laughs> but i'm going to bring it back to our signature question which we ask all of our guests and that is as a fellow well-being rebel which i presume you are you're all about positive mental health and well-being in the workplace right yeah of course of course what is the one change that you would like to see implemented in workplace well-being I would like to see more open conversations between client teams and lawyer teams on how they can better work to um, uh, ensure their teams, individual team members' well-being. That if if we could open a, a, a channel of communication an open channel of communication. That's the one change I would like to see more of. It already happens to a very, very limited extent. So I can't say it's brand new, mm-hmm. 
but I think more honest conversations. More? Yeah. Oh, I can, I can get behind yeah. that. More honest conversations. Yeah. Thank you for this very honest conversation, cool. Shagun. It was really, really a pleasure. I'm sure a lot of people have learned quite a bit about how far we've come, but still have to yes. go on this issue of racial parity, equity, as well as just finding out more about you. So it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us. And um, don't be a stranger. Not at all, Rosie. It was a pleasure. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Wellbeing Rebellion. If you liked what you just heard, please share it with your colleagues. Follow us on LinkedIn. The link will be in the show notes. And generally show us some love. We want to build a whole army of fellow rebels who want to create positive workplaces for everyone. Will you join the rebellion? See you next time.